I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Last episode, we heard Major General Frederick Boots Blasse describe his second tour in Korea, a couple of intense dogfights, and becoming a flying ace. In this episode, the second of a three-part series, Blasse tells the full story behind his motto, No Guts, No Glory, how it became Air Force Doctrine, and he explains how dogfighting has changed over the years. The main feature that gave us a, a 10 to 1 kill ratio was training and experience. We, we, uh, when I went over there, I had almost 400 hours in the F-86. When the guys went to Europe in 1940, uh, 41 or 2 along in there, 42, early 42, they got, the guys went over there and went into combat with less than 100 hours. And uh, so that was a, that's a big difference. But the main, the main thing was uh, we had a bunch of fighter pilots that were very highly experienced, and we had a good airplane, and we were taught ahead of time by our intelligence people, what the MiG could do in relation to what we could do. We were taught, don't try to turn with him at, at uh, low or medium altitudes, and especially not at high altitudes. Don't try to climb away from him. He was going to get you at low or high altitudes, either one. So they, they, we had a clear view, a pretty clear picture of what we should and should not do against the MiG. And uh, that coupled with hours and hours and hours of dogfighting in the, in the U.S., I fought against uh, P-51s. I fought against other, all, every other kind of fighter you can imagine. And we did it because down in our hearts somewhere, we thought the time is going to come when I can use all this. And in most cases, as that thing demonstrated over there, it doesn't happen. But it did happen to me. And by the time I got over there, I had a world of experience. I had wanted to do it since I was eight years old, and I couldn't wait. The MiG pilots were poorly trained. And I, I, that was something that, uh, that struck me as very odd. When I went back to the States, I was a leading ace when I went back. And, and of course, I had to go back to the Pentagon for debriefings. And I got debriefed by the intelligence people. And they told me that I never flew against anybody but a Russian pilot. That during the time I was there from, from about the 1st of March of 52 until I came home in October of 52, they were all Russian pilots. And I thought back and thought, God, of all the stupid things that I saw people do, I can't believe that, well, I guess they were just uh, new Russian pilots. But you would have thought they were North Koreans or Chinese that, were, that only had 10 hours in the airplane or something like that. You know, they just... Uh, it just did a lot of crazy things that, that indicated uh, very poor training. There was a good reason for the poor, poor kill rate we had at the beginning of the war, and that was we didn't go up every day and find a whole bunch of MiGs up there. And in my group, I, I never, very, very seldom uh, ever saw an enemy airplane because I was in an air-to-ground outfit. We were full of bombs. We went up there and we were dive-bombing Hanoi and, and these other places, and it was Ohl's outfit that had the air-to-air mission, and they would come in and, and uh, do air cover for us. Uh, there were MiGs, but they weren't very many. And the MiGs that they saw that were primarily uh, was the MiG-21 at this time. And the MiG-21 had an, what they called an uh, Atoll missile. It was a heat seeker. And uh, that thing would come in going like hell, fire one missile, and then climb up and go home. And he'd get a kill, 
And you know, there was no way to chase him. There wasn't any way. The, the uh, fighter bombers are all full of bombs and stuff. They're not going to chase anybody. And unless uh, somebody saw him positioning himself and got behind him, you're never going to get a kill. So the hit-and-run tactics by the MiG-21s, in my opinion, were why, what kept that kill ratio like that. The primary difference when we went from uh, reciprocal engines to jet engines was speed. Were two things really speed and fuel. Those were the two things you had to think about. You never had enough fuel. You go off in a P-47. You could uh, you could fly a P-47N for seven and a half hours, but you go off in a P-80 that came in to replace that that, that our squadron was picking up, and without drop tanks, you got about a 35-minute flight. That was it. And then they put wing tanks on it, and uh, with the wing tanks, we get about an hour and a half. So you could go a long way, a lot, probably go almost as far away and hit something and come back because you're going at such a big speed. But uh, you, you really had to be careful about fuel control. And in the early F-80s, it had, a, uh, it had an engine-driven fuel pump, an electric fuel pump that you had to be careful of. Uh, the time I flew them, there was no auxiliary. There's no extra pump. I flew the, the 80 fairly early, way back in fifty. 56. It took a lot longer uh, run on the runway, for one thing. And uh, then after you got it airborne, it seemed like you were going like hell. I was impressed before I got to the end of the runway or to the end of the field how fast I was going already. And then the jug, you'd have been chugging along there at about 100 to 110 miles an hour. And this thing was already up to damn near 200, you know, 195 miles an hour. I was impressed mostly by the speed, and I've been I've been taught and briefed carefully that uh, speed is okay, but fuel is more important. And you watch what you're doing with your fuel all the time. That fuel pump that uh, that I mentioned a little while ago, they didn't have it on the early airplanes, and there were a number of guys killed with it because it failed on takeoff or something like that. And in fact. Uh, they had already killed quite a few people because of the uh, uh, fuel pump failure on takeoff. And Richard Bong, who was the highest-ranking ace of our history, was killed in an F-80 because he forgot to pull that thing on in the fuel pump safe. He forgot to turn on the, the extra one. There were two in that went on. And if one failed you, and you turned this other switch on, you turned it on, made your takeoff, and then turned it off after you got out of the traffic pattern. And uh, that killed him. Uh, I think that the beginning of No Guts, No Glory came uh, when I took over operations of the 334th Squadron. George Davis was a great pilot, and he got the Medal of Honor, and what else can you say about a guy? But the truth of the matter was, uh, when I got there, the guys were flying very wide formations. You couldn't tell what what really they were going to do when you, if you had to turn into them or something like that. There was no doctrine. There was no little book you could go to and say, this is the way we do it. And uh, that's why I got the flight commanders together. I flew with them and showed them the error of their ways. I let them fly wherever they wanted to and proved to them that they couldn't do it, couldn't stay there in a, in a dogfight. And when they realized they had to get in here about close enough to see the numbers on the tail, that's when they knew they could get there, that they could stay there if I, no matter what I did. And uh, that was the beginning of it. And then we had a lot of things uh, that we developed over there. I had the, if the guys didn't get a fight, I told them, I said, a, a golf pro, you said, you guys come in here and you see MIGs about four or five times in 100 missions and think you're a qualified air-to-air -air pilot? You haven't even begun to learn yet in five missions. You're just barely over the time where you don't get scared. And I said, that's... Uh, that is just not going to cut it. It's just, you'd be like a professional golfer who didn't practice for a month before he went out and played in the Masters tournament. And he's only playing for money. You guys are playing for your lives. We're not going to do that anymore. You're going to have three fights a week, and I don't care if you get them with the MIGs or whether you have to do them by yourself. But when the, toward the end of the week, if you've had one fight with the MIG, and that's all, you better plan. Your flight commanders are going to plan for you to come back 10 minutes early and you'll do a dog, a dog fight, two against two around the field, and then you come in and land. That's the way you get experience. And uh, oh, that went over like an iron balloon. But it got better when I got my first two kills, and then 
on the 6th of August of 1952, we went up into Mig Alley, and we had, I think, 12 aircraft in our squadron. There were 12 from the other two squadrons, and the MiGs were everywhere. The famous saying was there were wall-to-wall MiGs, and they were there. Somebody said, you're going to have to go get them, and I don't know who it was because we never had experienced that before. And by this time, these things that I had, to- had laid down in my squadron and had them doing, that was back in April. And they've been doing April, May, June, July. They've been doing this. They're fighting three times a week and never, hardly ever seeing the MiGs. Uh, I think by the time the 6th of August came, I had my third one. But hardly anybody else. We had three or four other guys maybe had, had a sporadic kill or not. No, no, nobody in any of the squadrons was getting them. The 6th, they were all up there. And... Uh, we got into a fight. I got, uh, I think I got one. I got one that afternoon and a damage. Uh, we had two other guys in my squadron that got, that each got kills. We came back with three kills, a probable, a couple of damages. Not a single wingman got lost his leader. And everything was fine. We came back. We had a big debriefing. It totally transformed the thinking of, of the fighter pilots in that squadron. There was never a mention after that time of having to come back and do a dogfight or having to do this or having to, they all just got in line and said, show me the way this works and that's the way we're going to do it. And uh, we got, uh, I think we had, I'm going to guess right now, but we had 11 kills, I think, in August. In September, we had 17. And I left the 3rd of October. I got I jumped out on the 3rd and I think then I went over a over to Tokyo for a press conference on the 4th and 5th, and I think the 6th of October, which was the day my mother died in 1930. Uh, I left the theater and went back to the States. But um, anyway, I think the overall basis and the thinking for No Guts, No Glory came out of that experience that we had in the squadron. They sent me back to uh, Nellis Air Force Base, which is the training command base, and we were training all the fighter pilots that went to Korea, six squadrons there. I got there, and we set up our own training, and I've set it up all around No Guts, No Glory. After about three months, we're sending guys out there with the training that we're giving them. The other five squadrons still flying out here, telling them a bunch of things that don't work and all that. And I didn't want to go to five different squadron commanders and try to convince them. I went up to uh, Colonel Tice. No, it wasn't Tice. He had gone by then. It was, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute. But I went to him. He was a group commander. And I just said, I need to talk to you about something. I'm going to leave you with an idea. And so you do whatever you want with it. And if you don't like it, if you don't think it's a good idea, I promise you I won't bring it up again. So I laid it all out and said, this is what we're doing in our squadron. This is the success we're having now. This is the success we had with this same idea in Korea. And, uh, I think we ought to be all doing the same program and not one squadron teaching one thing and another squadron teaching something else. And uh, about a day later, I got a phone call to come up to group ops and I came up there and he said, I've gone all over this thing. And he said, you're dead right. We're going to do it. We're going to do it throughout the group. And he said, what's more, I called crew training air force and uh, talked to them about it. And they want you to go to Williams air force base and pass this same program off to the people at Williams and also the people at Luke. We had three training bases at that time. So that way we got all the information. Hadn't Still hadn't written anything yet. We got all the information. Then some of that information got into the fighter weapons newsletter. And as a result of that, they were talking about tactics and talking about my squadron and what we had done and that sort of thing. And the next thing we knew, we had requests from fighter squadrons in the Air Force to come out over the weekend, and by the way, I had established a, a, a little tactical team, four of us in my squadron, and we flew with, with uh, we flew against other people in our own squadron, and then later on, these guys wanted to come in from other squadrons, people from Maine, people from Florida, people from Kansas, wherever there was an outfit, they'd send a, a flight of the best guys that they had, and they'd send them out, and we'd fly with them. So. Uh, after that happened a couple of times, we brought them in and I'd brief them and tell them, you know, uh, you can't do this. Your, your wingmen are too far away. You're, this is not going to work right. You did do this right. This was good, but the rest of it's not good. And here's what you need to work on. And uh, 
they thanked us profusely and went back home. So after about the second or third squatter, I got tired of telling everybody the same things, and I sat down and I wrote about three or four pages that encompassed most of the things that we were going to cover with these guys. And the next thing I got, uh, I got requests from the Navy and Marine squadrons to come in, and uh, we were really doing, though the weekends, I hardly had a weekend. Every weekend, somebody wanted a, a tactics team from their own squadron that they wanted to come out and fly with us. The next thing that happened, I got a call from General Ben Davis. I think he was a colonel at the time. Wonderful guy. He was the chief of the fighter division in the Pentagon, and he wanted me to come up and see him. I thought, oh, geez, I'm a lowly major, you know. So I go up there not knowing exactly what's going to go on, and he said, I've heard all about your tactics team out there at uh, Nellis, and he said, I want you to take that tactics team to the Far East and fly with uh, every F-86 squadron that we have in the Far East. And there were about, well, we had, a, we had uh, three squadrons at Chitose, three at Itazuki. We had three in the Philippines, a couple more, too. We had, I think there, it was about 11 squadrons total. But before we got through, uh, you probably have never heard of this guy because you're too young. But back in the early 50s, this is, we're talking 53, 54, there was a, a very famous Taiwan Chinese commander. He was the commander of the Chinese, Free Chinese Air Force. And they had just received their F-86s, and these guys were, were training in them. And they all had about 50 to 100 hours in the airplane at the most. And he came back to the Pentagon with a request to let us come over to uh, Taiwan and fly with his, with his outfit and see how his guys were doing. And the strange part about that whole trip was that they had as good, uh, they were, there were two squadrons that were really good. And one, one squadron in the, in the 35th wing at Itazuki was really good. And that squadron at, in Taiwan was really good. And these guys had practically no time at all. And they were really working on the right things. And God, I got into one wing, a wing at Chitose. Here's a wing that had the fourth wing. They had all these famous fighter pilots that went through there in World War II and Korea and everything. And he's got a regulation against air-to-air combat. There'll be no aerial combat. He, and he's scared to death as a wing commander. Two guys will run together or do something, and he'll get fired as the wing commander. So I thought that was as stupid a thing as I could ever see. I just couldn't believe that he's in the business of of running a fighter group and doesn't care what their training is as long as he doesn't get fired. And I put that in my report. And there was another one. Uh, there was another one at uh, one of the groups at Itazuki was the same way. They didn't fly any air-to-air combat. They were, uh, they were told they couldn't do that. And they were, they were trying to do it down in the Philippines, but they were making a big mess of it down there too. And that wasn't very good. So when I got through, I got, went back to the States and uh, this took quite a while. It took us, I guess, six weeks to do all this. It was the greatest flying in the world. We loved it. It was good. And uh, when I got back, I, I sat out, and for about three days, I labored over a report that I wanted to send back to the Pentagon. And in the meantime, the commander of Nellis was a guy named, uh, Jim was his first name. I'll think of it, I hope. Anyway, he was the commander of Nellis. He knew he was in the command of all of these people that were flying and doing all this stuff. And he called me in and uh, wanted me to give him a briefing of how that thing went. So I gave him a briefing and I told him exactly what I, how it worked and who was at fault and who was crazy and who was doing a good job and that sort of thing. And he said, uh, uh, Boots, he said, you're not going to, you're not going to put all this in a written report, are you? And I said, yes, sir, I plan to. I've already written the report out. And he said, uh, you're going to have people hunting your head for 10 years. And I said, well, Colonel, I said, here's the way I feel about that. A guy at Air Force headquarters was interested enough to have me get this team and go out there and try to find out, tell him, and tell headquarters Air Force how our Far East Air Force is doing in the F-86 world. And I spent a lot of money. I spent a lot of time and a hell of a lot of effort to develop the things that are in this report. And I said, I honestly feel that it's my responsibility to give it to him. 
And if they want to hunt my heads over head for it, let them hunt. That's okay with me. You know, I don't. So it's all right, he says, it's your career. <laughs> Never had any trouble over it. I sent it in to Colonel Davis, and uh, he gave me a call on the phone and said, that's one of the best reports I've ever seen. It's great. And he said, as of Monday morning, there'll be a new commander at Chitosi, and there'll be a new commander of the 35th Wing at uh, Itazuki. He said, we've relieved those two, and the rest of them have been, uh, we've talked to them and discussed it. They all, they all felt that uh, it was a good thing, and they're working hard on the results of it. Well, to get back, I, got, I kind of got away from my no guts, no glory, but I had this little four-page thing that I gave to the squadrons that came in over the weekend. When the Air Force came to me and said they wanted me to go over there, I said, geez, I can't have a cheesy little report like this. So I sat down and started writing No Guts, No Glory. And I started first with just the initial portion of it. I just wanted the basic principles of offense and the basic principles of the defense. When I got that through, there were a lot of other things like that people disagreed with that I thought had no reason to disagree with them, like the way you train people. And one of the big things in those days was that they had a regulation that said you could only fight, if you were in an F-86 outfit, you could only fight F-86s. You could fight similar airplanes, but not dissimilar airplanes. And uh, one of the things I've put into No Guts, No Glory was that the last thing in the world that you want to do is to have similar combat with another aircraft to be your same performance. What you want to do is have aircraft of different performance so you can compare what they can do and what you can do and see if you can exercise your aircraft and your tactics to overcome the best features of his airplane. But all you're going to do fighting the same airplane that you're in, you're going to send both people to the extreme limits of the airplane with the individual himself trying to outdo the other individual and one of them is going to exceed the limits of the airplane trying to stay with him and you're going to have accidents. That's where accidents come. They don't come from fighting an F-84 with, a, with an F-86. It's two F-84s that'll kill each other. Two F-86s. The No Guts, No Glory stayed with the Air Force, I think, full-time, classified for, I don't know, 15, for about 18 to 20 years, 22 years. And then with the advent of missiles and uh, different training programs and things of that nature, they declassified it, gave me my own book back and said, do what you want with it. Uh, still, I get letters from fighter pilots that are flying at 15 <laughs> that all want copies of it. And I send them out. I had a bunch of them made up and sent them out. I sell them at air shows and things that people buy. But uh, the common conception, I would describe it as a misconception, is that dogfighting is really not necessary. You don't need it anymore. The airplanes are too fast. You've got missiles that fire 25 miles and knock somebody down, and you're so far away from him that the guy in the, uh, in the radar shack has to tell you, that, oh, yeah, you got him, you got him. You, know, you don't even know yourself what the hell happened. And you're not maneuvering, you're not doing anything. You're just aiming it in a certain place that this guy tells you to and firing off a missile. And that would make any non-thinking person and any person who hadn't been out there and tried it himself to think that dogfighting really is extinct. But you need to get in a fighter airplane and go out and fire a missile at another guy and find out that he's traveling towards you, that your closing speeds, uh, closing speeds <laughs> in, in World War I were about uh, 250 knots. Add them together when they come in. Closing speeds in uh, Korea were about 800 knots, maybe 1,000. Maybe 1,500 even. Closing speeds in Vietnam were uh, in excess of Mach 2. So you got these two guys closing. You fire a missile at him. And uh, you really don't have enough time to fire, sit there and fire two or three or four missiles at him to get him. You go get him on the first try or he's inside your missile range. Now, it's possible if when he comes in, you, you fire an AIM-7 at him, and that doesn't work. But you can't fire an AIM-9. Well, you couldn't at least at this time. Now, you've, now they've got AIM-9s that are sensitive enough to where you can fire head-on. And the heat seeker could probably do it. But 
that's a little iffy also. Uh, my point is that missiles don't always work, and when they don't work, the closing rate of the airplanes suddenly gets you into a range where you see each other, and the first guy to turn away is going to get killed. Because now you really are in missile. You're, if, if the two of them are coming in and, and they're uh, only a mile apart or something and nobody's been able to hit the other one, if one of them turns away, the other guy gets on his same line and fires an air-to-air missile, a heat seeker, and they really work from the back. You're not going to miss many heat seekers from the rear. Uh, so that might work. Some of them, you might not miss them, but the missile may not work. The crux of the whole matter is that everything doesn't always work like it's supposed to. And if the long-range missile misses, if the shorter-range missile isn't any good, the next thing you know you're within sight of him, you have to turn with him or, or do something very dumb like turning away, and all of a sudden you're in a turning battle with the guy. And it doesn't matter whether you can go Mach 2 and he can go Mach 10, you're still in a turning battle with him, and uh, one of the two of you is going to be able to outturn or has to know the basic principles of dogfighting in order to get yourself out of that predicament. And so dogfighting still... It may not be in World War One. It was the primary thing. In World War Two, it was still really primary. In Korea, it was primary. In Vietnam, it was secondary. You always had we always had missiles first, but uh, many times we ended up up there with uh, uh, going round and round with another airplane that. Either one of us could do 1,500 miles an hour, but there we are, clunking around a circle at uh, 300 knots trying to do something that we uh, don't want to do. And to me, that's the afterglow. That's the thing uh, that people have got to think about. It's the third step down. And as a fighter pilot, you can't afford to, ex- to know step one and step two, and not step three. In short, the information in No Guts, No Glory is not really obsolete, and it's not obsolete because uh, radars go out, pilots make mistakes, missiles don't work, all kinds of things can happen during the mission to keep you from getting uh, the kill that you think you're going to get at 25 at 25 miles, and you don't get it at all. And in the final analysis, it's the pilot's ability. It can very easily come down to the fact that it's the pilot's ability to maneuver his airplane, know how to get the maximum performance out of it that will determine whether he lives or dies. And for that reason, I don't think it's obsolete. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Jim Hagerstrom and I were... were Two of the older fighter pilots, we had gotten kills. He got eight, and I got ten in Korea. And uh, I think he had one or two even in World War II while I was sitting on my fanny at West Point. But we were very concerned about the trend in the Air Force of getting rid of guns. And they aren't everything, but they are necessary, in our opinion. We went up to see General Momar. General Momar was the uh, director of requirements in the Pentagon at the time. He was a brigadier general eventually became a four-star. 
And he agreed to see us. We went in, and uh, he started off by saying, well, I understand you two guys want to talk to me about guns. And we said, yes, sir, we do. And he said, what the hell do you think you're going to talk about guns? He said, guns are passe. Haven't you guys gotten rid of that? You know, you shoot down a couple airplanes uh, with a gun, and you think that's the only thing in the world that's ever going to do it. That's history. We've got missiles now. We don't need that sort of thing. And before we could ever utter a sound, he gave us a real dressing down on the fact that we thought it was important enough to come up and talk to him about it. So it was obvious we'd lost the battle. And I said, well, General Omar, let me just say this. You and I are locked in a phone booth. And we're in a death fight. We each want to kill each other. I've got a pistol, and you got a rifle that could kill me at 300 yards. My pistol is maybe only good for 50 yards. But we're in a phone booth. Who do you think is going to win that? You think you can get your rifle aimed at me in a phone booth? I can get my pistol aimed at you. So a short-range weapon sometimes can be the only thing that, that you not only need, but the only thing that you want. Might be the only thing you can use. What good are missiles on the airplane if you're inside the range where the missile works? What good is that? And he said, no, I never really thought about it that way, but, uh, you know, and he kind of waffled around a little bit, and, <laughs> and out we went. <laughs> but he reminded me of that later. And when I was in, uh, I was a director of operations of the 366th wing at Da Nang. I got there in F-4s, no guns. The F-4 had no gun, but I knew from the training program in the States that there was a big pod called the Su-16 pod, that had a 20-millimeter gun in it, and it could be hung underneath a, an F-4. I knew it could be done. I'd seen it done and watched it fired at Edwards. So I got my people to requisition a half a dozen of those. And everybody said, you haven't got a prayer. They're going to send you those things over here. Just requisition them. And God, a couple of weeks later, we got these two great big things, and we got six of these uh, big guns. So... We had them hung on the airplane, got to, made sure that the crew chiefs knew what the hell they were doing and that sort of thing. And uh, first of all, I just took them up uh, with a pod on one airplane and no pod on the other. And uh, the reason I did that was that the wingman, he's always in there, he's flying formation and he's jockeying. If I make a turn, he has to increase his power. And, and he, traditionally, the wingman will come back with less fuel than the leader. That's the basis of that. So... If I put a pot on my airplane and I use a little bit more fuel than he does, we'll probably come back pretty close to the same. So it shouldn't hurt anything. So uh, for about two weeks, I had myself and another guy, a major named Dilger, who had been in one of the, uh, the uh, commands that was doing experimental stuff in the States and was now one of my pilots. And Dilger and I alternately flew these pods, and we we did hard turns with them. We did air to ground work. We went out uh, we, we went out one morning, uh, about oh I don't know six o'clock, six thirty in the morning. It was barely light, and we got up there and went along the coast. And here there must have been two hundred sampans, all of them up on the beach. And all these guys are pulling supplies out of the sampans and they're taking them over and putting them in caves or something. We came up there with that, with that 20 millimeter cannon. That thing puts around every eight inches. That's how bad it is. If you, if you could get a guy in an airplane like this and all you got to do is just pass it through his wing like that, it puts a, a hole about that big every eight inches across there and tears the wing. And, that, and then the air pressure will tear the wing off. So... We went down there and just fired all the way down, and the sampans just just cut them in half. They just fell apart like that. We had guys running all over the place and fires going and all that. We brought back some film. And uh, so at the end of a week, two weeks it was really, I got all this data together along with a little bit of film. And we did some air-to-air -air fighting, and I showed him how I thought we ought to do it. We didn't have a, we didn't have a, uh, a computing gun sight, but— we did have a number of people who'd been through the fighter weapons school, myself and some, a bunch of other guys, and I felt that I could teach them about roughly, don't ever put the pipper on the airplane and fire. 
that ain't going to do any good because everything you fire, everything you shoot is going to be back here. So uh, the average guy would say, okay, well, let's put it out here and then maybe you'll run into it. That's exactly what we want you to do. Move it out here a little further than you think it ought to be and start firing and let him fly into it. And uh, so we figure that'll work. So I took the whole thing down and I went, I got a permission to go in and see General Omar. And here he is now, he's the commanding general of, uh, of 7th Air Force. So I had a 10 o'clock briefing with him and about five minutes to 10, I'm sitting in a chair outside with all my stuff waiting to go in and brief him. And out he comes out of the office with Robin. And Robin had been there the hour before or the half hour before uh, he had been down on some kind of a problem that General Momar wanted to brief him on or something. And when Momar saw me, he said, uh, oh, yeah, he said, uh, hey, Robin, uh, Blesse here from the 366 is going to give me a briefing on uh, guns in the F-4. He said, would, uh, would you like to sit in on that? Oh, yes, sir. So the two of them sit in there. I gave him this briefing, went all through everything we had done, showed him how we were going to do air to air, showed him what the results were in the air to ground. Uh, showed him about uh, fuel consumption, showed him about G's and, and how, how many G's you could pull before you would actually have any trouble pulling that thing off the airplane. I really did, if I say so myself, gave him a very, very thorough briefing. I was proud of it. I was glad of it. Uh, I knew that I had covered all the points that I wanted. And I stopped briefing and I said, well, that's about it, General. What do you think? And he sat there for a minute. He turned to Robin. He said, Robin, what do you think about that? And Robin, without any hesitation, Robin says, General, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. I could have gone over three rows of seats at his throat. I was so damn mad at him for doing that. So, oh, God. Finally, though, uh, Robin left. Momar and I discussed it a little bit, and he said, well, he said, you know, Blessé, you and I have been through this before. You do remember that. Oh, yes, sir, I remember that. <laughs> and... Uh, he said, I think you got a hole in your head, but there is some possible merit to it. Go ahead and give it a try and keep me informed. Okay, so out I went. I got, uh, now I got permission to try it. The next two days, uh, Dilger and I take a wingman and a, and a, and a pod, and we go up there, and uh, we go up with the strike force, and then we mill around waiting for some MiGs to come up and, uh, and try to interfere with the strike force or something. Nothing. We, even after they'd all gone home, we even stayed there and made a couple circles of the area. And that's usually you get a SAM fired at you or some damn thing. But nothing. Two days, next day, same thing. Nothing happened. The third day, uh, I had some very good colonels that were uh, fire weapons, uh, fighter weapons school qualified that I'd checked out on this and had, had brought them into it. I had formed a tactical, a wing tactical uh, section, and these were, guys were part of it. So I, I stepped down. Dilger stepped back and gave uh, these other two guys uh, uh, the pods, and up they went. And the MiGs were all over the place, naturally. And uh, they got two MiGs. There was a flight of uh, four. One of the guys fired an, an AIM-7 that missed. Another guy fired an AIM-9, an AIM and uh, he got a kill with it, with the AIM-9. And the other two people that had maneuvered and got in gun range knocked down with the gun. So... So we got, uh, we got three kills and a miss with a long-range missile. And that rate, because my commander was over in Hong Kong, I got to write the, the daily operational report. So Robin was a West Pointer, and, and so was I. And there was a West Pointer back in the 1860s, General Winfield Scott. I think he was in the 60s. And he always made an—he made a—, a, a started his opinions with the statement, it's my fixed opinion that. So I knew if I used that phrase, Robin, <laughs> Robin would catch it. Well, we went all through the, the ground sorties and what we'd attacked and that sort of thing, no losses, this, that, and the other. And then I said, in the air-to-air -air war, uh, however, there was a great deal of activity. And uh, we ran into a lot of MiGs. Uh, we had two of the pods in the area, and in those flights, we expended one, uh, uh, one AIM-7, Without results, it missed it. We expanded one AIM-9, and he got a kill with it, and we got two kills with the gun. And I said, the AIM-7 
cost the Air Force 67, I've forgotten these figures if they're right or wrong, cost the Air Force $67,000 and produced nothing. The, uh, the AIM-7, which cost the Air Force $14,000, produced a kill. The first kill with the gun, uh, the pilot fired a, a little over 100 rounds, and uh, at $5 a round, that cost the Air Force $500. And then the other one was something like $350 because he, and uh, so when I got all through and I said, uh, I thought these were, were rather significant uh, results and that you would appreciate this. And then I said, finally, uh, to sum up my report, it's my fixed opinion that there will be two pilots meetings in the theater tonight. Theater tonight. One of them will be in Hanoi and the other one will be in the 8th Stack Fighter Wing at Ubon. <laughs> And that thing had no more gotten on the wire, and Robin was furious. He's on the he's on the phone. You son of a bitch! You're trying to ruin my career. What are you? Doing? I said, Robin, Robin, wait a minute, calm down. I said, you dug yourself such a deep hole. You're down the bottom of that hole. I can't understand what you're saying. You something. He kept swearing at me. So finally, he hangs up and. Well, we had already been fairly good friends, but Robin had ranked me for the, for the whole time we were in the Air Force. He was a major before I got out of the academy, and only, he only got out two years ahead of me. So anyway, about a week later, uh, I was coming back from a mission, and the weather was terrible at Da Nang. We couldn't get in, and, and we diverted and, uh, and went over to uh, Ubon to land. Went over there. Guys landed. We went over to the club to have a Coke or whatever. And uh, we were sitting around at the table, and all of a sudden, it sounded like somebody had fired a gun. And everybody in the place jumped and turned around and looked in the doorway. There was a, there was a swinging door. You know, it wasn't a full door. It was just a half-swinging door like this. Robin came in, whacked that door, and it went back, and, and it slapped against the wall and sounded like a gunshot. And uh, he got in, and he looked around like this, and he sees me over <laughs> over there, and he's coming right straight over for me. And about this time, looking at his size, I'm looking for a chair or something, because this is not going to be good. <laughs> and, and Robin comes over, he gets about, he's stern face as he can be, he gets about as close as you and I are, breaks into a great big huge grin, sticks out his hand, and he says, you know, it's a long, been a long time since I got my ass chewed by a junior colonel. <laughs> but that was Robin. He was... Uh, that's the kind of a guy he is, and that's a, one of the things that made him such a, a tremendous commander. He was probably, in my opinion, the the best fighter group commander, uh, fighter wing commander we had in Vietnam. He was he really was good. In reference to dogfighting and and uh, the the decline in our dogfighting ability, it might be described as in Vietnam, uh, we had some real problems. Uh, right after Korea, Korea was a was a gun war. Korea, we had uh, we finally ended up with the F eighty six that had twenty two twenty millimeter guns in it, the F eighty six F, and most of the aces we had all all the aces but two that we had that got ten or more all got them between March and, and July of uh, nineteen fifty three when we had the when we had the better armament and a little bit better airplane. After the war was over, we got into the missile thing. The missiles came along and. I hate to say this, but I think our hierarchy, <laughs> uh, some of the higher-ranking officers in the Air Force, uh, maybe that weren't doing enough flying or just didn't see it this way, felt that because of the missiles, you don't need a dogfight anymore. Dogfighting's passe. It's not. It's not necessary. You get you got you got missiles that'll get kills at 25 miles. What do you want a dogfight for? That was the attitude, and that's one of the reasons they quit doing it. And uh, of course, the wing commanders. They weren't going to do it if there wasn't any requirement to do it because it was dangerous. And every now and then, a couple of guys would run together. There'd be an accident. New commander. So if they didn't have to do it, they weren't going to do it. And the bigwigs, a lot of them, had already made up their minds that it really wasn't necessary. Uh, I had that that no gust, no glory thing, and I wrote another. Uh, I wrote another thing in the front of it called Afterglow that that more or less countered that and said, I know you don't think this is necessary, but missiles don't always work. Uh, pilots make mistakes. Radar people make mistakes in, in vectors and things of that nature. And believe me, there are going to be times when you're in the airplane 
and you've you've missed the missile. The missile is missed, and the airplane is down to the point where the two of you are in sight of each other, and neither one of you can afford to turn away. The first guy that turns away gets killed. So you turn into each other, and as you turn into each other, air speeds decrease. Somebody gets around the circle, and you've got to know how to handle your airplane and what to do in a dogfight. It's just something uh, that's not ever going to go away, in my opinion. You're going to have all kinds of missiles and all kinds of things, but there's too many things that don't work, too many people make mistakes, and eventually you're going to get down to step three. Step one is knocking him out at a long range. Step two is uh, maybe getting him at short range when he turns away or something like that. And step three is you're inside all your missiles and all you got left is a gun. And uh, if you don't know anything about step three, and the other guy knows, adios, baby. <laughs> the fighters these days uh, are all coming out with guns, even the F-22, uh, they're our newest fighter. And I feel very, very gratified that if, if I had only made one contribution uh, to the fighter force and the Air Force, it was the fact that I got people thinking again that, that guns were really necessary on airplanes. I had generals that didn't like it, and I had generals that told me I had holes in my head, but go ahead and try it. And we tried it, and, and by the kills we got in Vietnam, before we finished in Vietnam, we got a new F-4E that had 20-millimeter guns in it, internal. They were, and since then, nobody's questioned the fact that guns were necessary. And uh, I... You know, maybe I'm taking too much credit. I don't mean, I don't care about credit. I just feel that in that area, I made a contribution that I'm proud of and just leave it at that. If you look back over history, uh, things have changed so much. Uh, your new, your early airplanes uh, had a closing speed of about 250 miles an hour. Newport spads against each other, against the Germans. German aircraft and um, the Fokker D8s and that sort of thing. By the time you got into New World War II, you had closing speeds of uh, around 800 miles an hour. And then when you got into uh, Korea and Vietnam with the jets, you had closing speeds that uh, could very easily be up around uh, 1,500 to 2,000 miles an hour. That's the way things have changed in that regard, and the importance of that is that there's no longer a time that you can sit up there twiddling your thumbs thinking, well, maybe I ought to do this or maybe I ought to do that. By the time you think that twice, it's too late. Uh, you have to know what's coming, what's going on, what you can do, what you can't do, and you got to know it now. You can't know it uh, 15 seconds from now because something else has happened. That's one thing. Secondly, armament changed so drastically. Uh, armament in the World War I aircraft, you had uh, 30 caliber guns. That progressed through the war, through through World War One. Toward the end, you you had some, I guess you had some uh, that were a little heavier than that, 50 caliber maybe or whatever. Uh, by the time we got into World War Two, the the armament had increased to uh, uh, 50 calibers and 20 millimeter guns, and uh, of course in Vietnam you're talking about missiles, things that you can fire and kill somebody from 25 miles away. So those are all things that, uh, that a pilot has to, he has to take into consideration when he jumps in that airplane and when he talks about going up and possibly shooting down another airplane in combat, he better know all these things and he better know uh, how they affect him, how much time he's going to have, how good he has to be, and that sort of thing, or he's going to be a casualty. And uh, now we have, uh, we have airplanes like the, uh, the F-22, and the F-23, uh, we have airplanes that they're testing. They have prototypes of them now that uh, they take off vertically like a helicopter and slowly go out of sight. And a minute and 30 seconds later, they come across the field doing 700 miles an hour. And uh, the, progress, uh, the, the progress in aviation has just been catastrophic. And we, we are getting to the point, in my opinion, that a lot of our airplanes are not going to be, not going to have pilots in them. The machines are going to go, and the machines will still do the, the things that they do now, and the machines themselves 
will, the pilot will actually be in a hut 75 miles away with a, with a, a keyboard and, and telling that fighter what to do, and the fighter will be dropping bombs or, or turning or doing whatever. He's looking on a screen and sees other fighters. And I just think of wars are going to be, uh, they're going to be fought with keyboards and, and uh, screens. And it's going to be a while yet, but uh, they're already doing they're already doing some of that with reconnaissance aircraft. They've done it in Af Afghanistan and uh, and Iraq, and uh, it's been very successful. And I think that uh, that will expand and will it'll tend to cut down uh, <laughs> people becoming aces and that sort of thing, and will change the whole nature of uh, of aerial combat. That was Major General Frederick Boots Blisset. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear Blisset talk about what inspired him to join the Air Force, what makes a good pilot, and the story behind how he met his childhood hero, the famous World War I pilot, Eddie Rickenbacker. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.